Welcome to Asia Rising, the podcast from Latrobe Asia, where we discuss news, views, and general happenings of Asian states and societies. I'm your host, Andrew Carr, a senior lecturer in the Strategic and Defence Studies Centre at the Australian National University. Globalisation and major power rivalry are creating a China-centric integrated Asian strategic system, drawing together the once discrete theatres of Northeast, Southeast, South and Central Asia. Nationalist ambition among the region's giants will make integrated Asia an unstable place where cooperation amongst the great powers will be much harder to achieve than in the past. Joining me to discuss this changing strategic geography is Professor Nick Bisley, the Executive Director of La Trobe Asia. He spoke to me at the launch of his new Center of Gravity paper, Integrated Asia, on 20th June, 2017. So Nick, thank you very much for your contribution. And I guess the obvious question to start with is your title, Integrated Asia. It suggests that Asia wasn't integrated, that there wasn't really an Asia before now. Yeah, I mean, I think um, at, at so, some of you in this room will have sat in my seminars in which you, when you're talking about Asia's international relations, you have the sort of opening get-to-know-you chit-chat in which you say, where is Asia and what is Asia? Um, and I think what, what often comes out of these conversations is, of course, the idea that Asia is not only vast territorially, it's vast in terms of its population, but it's also enormously diverse in everything from religion, language, culture, cuisine, however you like to slice it. Um, and that historically, as people often point out, historically the term Asia itself is one that comes from outside the region. Historically, you know, there's etymological arguments about whether it's Assyrian or ancient Greek, but it certainly is a term that was brought by Europeans. Um, it began in the first instance to refer basically to the lands to the east of Constantinople. And as Europeans went further east, the, the purview of Asia grew larger, but it's, it's not a term from the region itself. But like the term the Middle East, it is one that has been very much taken up by the population it was used to describe. But the, the point I, I try to make in the paper is that up until quite recently, this term, which was really a kind of catch-all phrase, a bit of an umbrella, portmanteau kind of term, which, you know, if you looked at maps of the region, um, you know, Asia was often shaded in kind of light letters that were pale across this vast terrain and the letters that were much more strongly imprinted on the maps were you know China or India or the Mughal Empire um, depending on the, the, the time period in which you're looking at things um, and what I'm what I am arguing here is that up until very recently the, the states and peoples of Asia that that's to say the states and peoples and polities that existed within this vast geography um, didn't actually have a great deal to do with one another now, there may have, may have been, and particularly in the modern period, uh, and especially in the post-Second World War period, what Asia was constituted of from an economic and a strategic point of view was kind of three or four sub-regions that cohered around a set of either economic or strategic or institutional formations that meant that, you know, internally speaking, a place like Southeast Asia made sense because it had ASEAN as a center of gravity and a shared set of concerns, whether that's about building post-colonial states in the context of the Cold War. Or Northeast Asia, which had um, at its sort of strategic heart the, the challenges of the Korean Peninsula and Taiwan, all really kind of circulated around the PRC. Um, and then South Asia as the, as the third sort of major sub-region um, which, of course, had and continues to have India as this looming presence. But due both to India's sort of inward problems, inward focus, and also the fact that um, it was a place in which the kind of 
what you might what these days we call on non-traditional security challenges problems to do with governance and porous borders meant that and and then the physical things like the himalayas and the like meant that but these regions were really um, walled off from one another and they didn't trade much with each other they didn't invest with each other much um, and they didn't think of their own strategic interests as asian um, and I think I used the phrase in the paper, slightly pompously phrased, but um, that, that there was no shared Asian strategic imagination. Um, and the point I'm trying to make is that now, really for the first time in the modern period, Asia actually makes a kind of strategic and economic sense. And, that, that, and, and what is at the heart of it is, of course, China, but it's not only about China. But the other kind of part of the story that's, that's I think, becoming increasingly central is the, is the Central Asian component, where um, certainly during the Cold War, the cent Central Asia, as we understand it now, was, was the Soviet Union and was thought of as a sort of, firstly, a Soviet space, and was also, oddly enough, often thought of as a kind of European space, as a, as a function of that Soviet um, um, identity or the way in which we thought of it. Whereas now, I think, um, we have a, a Central Asia, a South Asia, a Southeast and a Northeast Asia, which are being knitted together into this um, this thing which I call integrated Asia, or you just call it Asia. <laughs> the center of gravity series is mainly about kind of strategic questions and, and your essay kind of talks about strategic order. And yet one of my reactions when I first started reading it was, well, this is all economics. So what led you to kind of say the economics really matters for understanding this issue? And, and I guess what's particular about current economic interactions that has such an effect? Yeah, as, as someone who's a sort of come to strategy second in my career, came out of it um, from an IR and from a political economy point of view, I've always been somewhat puzzled by the tendency to kind of wall off the economic and the strategic. And I think it makes increasingly less sense. Um, I mean, I, I was never convinced by it, but it makes increasingly less sense now as the, as the world has become more, econo more economically integrated. Um, so that at a base level, I think yeah, the, the strategic and the economic have a, have a link that is often ha, has been un, underemphasized. But I think there's something particular about what's occurring in Asia now and has been occurring really over the past 10 or 15 years, which has created this integrative force. And, it's, um, and it has at its heart a, a, a key development in, um, in the processes of international production, which essentially, firstly, was the key, I think one of the key forces to allow China to become the economic powerhouse that it has. Um, and then secondly, has, as a result of that, really changed the way the various component parts of, South, of Southeast Asia, Northeast Asia, South Asia relate to each other. So what do I mean without wanting to get into a sort of fairly dull class about the, the politics of international production? But essentially, in the past, Southeast, Northeast Asia, um, and parts of South Asia largely competed for each, competed with one another for investment. So competing with, for, to, to get inbound investment from Europe and North America to build, for example, you know, a car plant or a white goods plant, which would then be used to sell cars or white goods to an Asian market or the Oceania market or, what, or wherever. What changed, what changed that really has, has been the big economic force that I think is, is crucial to in, to being the, the sort of integrative force in Asia um, is the way multinationals stopped being about you know building a factory in, in Detroit and then copying that factory and putting it in Java and then copying <coughs> another version of that factory and putting it in, in um, Korea and copying another one and putting it in India or wherever you might be putting it and instead become about 
productive processes and managing supply chains, and you start being in the business of branding, design, and supply chain management, um, which means that you can firstly tap into local price advantages and comparative advantage and all that sort of stuff, and you can source all of the component parts that go into your finished good, assemble it in the place where labor is at its cheapest, uh, and then market it to global markets. And those are largely Western Europe and North, America, North American, but not only. And so what that allowed, firstly, is that Southeast, Northeast, most first, first off, and now coming, in, coming online is, is South Asia, um, you're now beginning to, you, you have a trade in which you have quite high levels of intra-industry trade. You've got quite high levels of, of intra-Asian investment to support that intra-industry trade, in which you have now um, in China, the not the factory of the world, but the assembly room of the world. But it's also the assembly room of the world that on the back of that newly found wealth is becoming an ideas factory because it knows that it, can, it, it has a limited economic future if all it does is continue the sort of iPhone experience of you know, design in California assembled in, in Fujian or Shenzhen. Uh, that's only going to get you so far. So the internationalization of production and particularly the, the um, shift from making stuff somewhere else to being about supply chain, managing supply chains and components me meant that you've got this shift in the way Northeast, Southeast, South Asia relates to itself. So to each other rather. Um, and what we have tended to focus on in Australia has been, because what, this is where we fit in the economic relations, is the commodity stuff. So when we look at commodity trade, it looks kind of largely as it has for 30 or 40 years, which is dig stuff up out of the ground and sell it to people who are consuming it and turning it into steel or, or whatever they're doing with it, powering their, their um, electrical uh, generators. And so we sort of just see commodities going in, finished goods going out, and we're, not, and we're missing that intra-industry stuff that's binding Southeast Asia together. And, what, but, and what's the, and the, the, the key strategic point though, and I think there is, there is an interesting debate um, to be had about how economic relations relate to strategic power, and particularly you know, the, the, the question that's in a lot of people's minds is, if China has asymmetric economic relationships with 127 members of the United Nations, which it does, that's to say it has, a, a, it, it's more important to 127 members of the United Nations than they are to it, um, economically speaking, what does that mean in terms of their capacity to coerce countries? That's, that's an open question. But what it does do is align the interests of those countries. And so having, the United, ha having China at the center of this in increasingly integrated Asian economic system means that all of these countries that are bound into this set web of relationships have their interests aligned more along with, more, sorry, more aligned with Beijing than they have been in the past. Now that's not to say that everyone becomes instantly, you know, singing from the Xi Jinping's um, song sheet, much as they would like that to be the case, and they have some fairly cack-handed propagandistic efforts to make you do that, but we kind of see through those at the moment. Um, but what it is doing for the region, um, which has been up until quite recently dominated by the United States, but it's, what it is really doing is, is fundamentally changing that alignment of the strategic and the economic, because up until probably about 10 years ago, Virtually all of the countries in Asia, not just the allies of the United States, but virtually all of the countries in, in Asia had a fairly neat alignment between their economic and their political interests or their economic and their strategic interests. That is no longer the case because of this economic transformation.
Well, I had hoped we wouldn't just be about China, but by the second <laughs> question, there we are, <laughs> right in. Is China just extremely lucky and a kind of recipient of these processes in that it has the largest, cheapest workforce? Or is it also a driver of this kind of integrating of Asia? How do we understand, I guess, how it got to where it is? Yeah, I think it, it's, I mean, to some degree, it's it, it, it's a, like all of these things, is a degree of good fortune and good timing. So that, you know, in, in the mid to late 1970s, when they begin the reform and opening up program, uh, they and we would never have imagined that China would become what it is today. And partly because at, at, the, at that time, not only, you know, there was, there was such an enormous mountain to climb that it would, it would, it w it would be, and for some it still is sort of very difficult to imagine a China that's, that's very, very, that, that is a sort of, what, what's the Chinese phrase, a, a moderately prosperous nation, I think is the official term. Um, it's still difficult for some people to get their heads around that. So, but I think also, that, no, at the time, because of the way in which um, productive, the productive process operated, you know, you, you, would, you would have found it difficult to sit there and think in the late 70s and early 1980s, and even in the mid to late 1980s, that a company making big, complex, technologically sophisticated things would do that in China because you needed to do a whole range of the really complex engineering in China um, or, or wherever you were going to be doing it. And that would have been a leap of faith for a lot of firms, whereas the, the internationalization of production, which means you can source you know, the chips from, from Japan, the LED screens from Korea, the really high-end processing um, from, some of it comes from the United States, particularly the, the, the lens on the cameras, they all largely come from the United States in your iPhone and, and other um, devices. But you can get this stuff from wherever it's made best and you can put it together in, um, in Shenzhen or wherever you're putting it together and take advantage of that cheap, low-cost labor. And I think if that hadn't happened, there's no way Chinese economic growth would have accelerated to quite the level it did in the early, early 2000s and, and continues to, to grow quite rapidly now. So there is, you know, th th that was been, th you know, th they were fortunate in that regard. But it's also, you know, the government has been extraordinarily, you know, act I mean, to say, it's, to say a command economy has an activist state is sort of <laughs> kind of contradictory, sort of tautological. But um, the, the party state leadership has been acutely aware of these things so that as these technologies develop, as these capacities come online, and as they can see ways in which they can tap into it, they, they very shrewdly act to, to um, respond to these circumstances. So, you know, it begins with the special economic zones in the 1980s. So Shenzhen becomes one of the first. Uh, and um, as some of you know, Jeff Raby is on the advisory board of Latrobe Asia. He's a Latrobe alumni. Um, and not given to publicly admitting he's wrong very often. Um, and Jeff said one of the things he did in the 1980s was to go to Shenzhen, I think it was 1984, and to write a report for the Department of Foreign Affairs about the prospects of success in Shenzhen. And he write, said he went there and said, Forget about it. This isn't going anywhere, you know. So, so that pro they began with those, but then they continue to roll them out to this day. So that there's con there's a constant sort of readjustment and reaction to these circumstances. So, there there are developments that that that, that they have been fortuitous for, but they have also been very effective at responding to these circumstances to to position themselves. But you know, as I often say to my undergraduates, you know, when you do the iPhone thing and you pull out the iPhone and they all look at it and go, "Here's why you need to," you know, "Here's China's dilemma." The party is acutely aware of this 
problem that they've got in terms of needing to move beyond being an assembly room and to become a, a, a manufacturer of ideas because we know that's where the wealth is and wealth creation is at its most dynamic. And at the moment, it does have a few brands, it does have a few design ideas that it can turn into, into economic prosperity, but that's still a tiny proportion of, of what it needs to be to get that vast population further along. How does the Belt and Road Initiative feed into this? Is this a big integrating force? Or, I mean, to my mind, that often seems much more focused on kind of raw materials and infrastructure rather than, I guess, the kind of high-end manufacturing mm. you've tended to talk about. Yeah, I think, I, I, to me, the Belt and Road thing is actually the, the last piece of the puzzle that makes the story a kind of more coherent one. Because I think if, and certainly the, the, the strategic view from Washington, you know, if you get to, to, to the defense folk in, in the Pentagon and the, the sort of hard-headed analysts have, have looked at China and kind of gone, we can, over the next 30 or 40 years, we can probably contain Chinese power and influence if China re remains principally dependent on its maritime approaches. Because the US Navy is going to, for, for at least a generation or two, have a strategic edge on the maritime, in the maritime space. Uh, when uh, Xi Jinping announces the, the, the Belt and Road Initiative in two speeches in 2013, one in Bandung and one in, just gone blank, what was the other one? Kazakhstan, that's, thanks Tim. He's been to Kazakhstan, just fresh back from Kazakhstan. Um, which is, at, at, and at the time, a lot of people kind of went, oh, that's kind of interesting, but it's a classic Xi Jinping play of here's a speech, and then we'll go and figure out what it means. This is the Chinese policy people. We'll figure out what it means, and then we'll fill it in. Um, meanwhile, what was going on in Kazakhstan was, was road building, um, train building, uh, pipelines that have been in place, be, being sort of being pushed along at a local, fairly local level for a period of time, that then kind of got back engineered as this grand um, integrative force. But in fact, it, it is really important for um, for China in terms of fueling that economic growth. So it's still it's going to continue to need inputs into uh, its into whether it's the the business of urbanization, industrialization, or moving on um, up the next. You know, moving up the economic um, ladder. Uh, but it also wants, and from a strategic point of view, it has long wanted to ensure that it is not vulnerable to naval predation or maritime predation. And that's whether that's at its most acute, um, the, the sort of blockade by the US Navy of the, the, the Straits of Malacca, the so-called Malacca dilemma, whether it means that the US Navy is, not, is able to sort of curtail its capacity to get its um, nuclear deterrent out into the Pacific, it's, it's always felt that it's this vast country with this vast hinterland, but that it's tied to this maritime, um, that this littoral, which it, it doesn't command the access to that littoral. You know, the idea is, um, and it's that, you know, in Australia, we're acutely aware of this, you know, that we, that, that, that po it the, the politics around securing one's borders and the maritime approaches to um, one's borders has taken on a fairly toxic quality, but, there, the China has the same underlying concern. So it's, it's about both the ability to get things in and out of China, but also doing it in a way which provides China with a kind of strategic depth. And I think that's, to me, that's one of the components that's not only bringing China physically, so you're building these physical connections to link, you know, the, the whiskey bottles of, of Great Britain to the consumers of, of Zhejiang, which if you want to see some clunky Chinese public diplomacy, there's a little one minute 47 second YouTube video of this little whiskey bottle and a 
and a vitamin supplement bottle getting on a train. You know, this is getting on the train in, in it's called Stanton La Hope is the train station. And it travels, and they travel across to Yiwu in Zhejiang. This is this train line, and they fall in love, and they end up, but then they get separated, but then they end up on the, on the shelf next to each other. I mean, who puts the vitamin supplements next to the whiskey bottle? But, you know, who, good who, diet. Who, who, who am I to judge? Um, but so, so the fit, yeah, it's, it's partly about just the, you know, the physical connectivity, but it's also got, a, I think, an important strategic dimension, which is about providing China with diversification of supply, both in the in the sense of you know multiple pipelines brings happiness, but also in the sense that um, it provides China with an important level of kind of strategic depth. So when people look at it and go, ah, it's a financial black hole. It's got no, you know, you get the government strong arming people into to making investments with no financial return. They go, yeah, some of it doesn't have financial return, but it's got quite significant strategic return. So how much of this story is? China-centric and integrated Asia means we've got to focus on China and it, mm. the way its kind of um, connections to the rest of the world operate versus, I guess, the idea that this is a single strategic order. Like, what does that tell us for policymakers, for outside analysts about how this region operates if it is so integrated? Mm. So I think, yeah, we've, we've, we've I, me, <laughs> I've been talking about China a lot and China's China is the sort of integrative hub, if you like, of this. But it's not only a China story. In fact, if it was just a China story, it would be kind of less, in some respects, less interesting. And you'd find yourself in the, you know, um, China's recreating tributary system sort of narrative, which I think is is not particularly um, correct. Uh, so, and, you know, we did talk about the economic side of what's integrating Asia, but it's also being integrated by the self-identity and conception of interest of Asia's major powers. And so that's, so China, China, China is doing this and getting out and thinking of itself as a regional power of the first order. But India is also doing this. And I think that's the, the story that um, we have in Australia kind of woken up to fairly recently. Um, and there's still a long way to go. But under Prime Minister Modi, you know, India wants to be and is thinking of itself as, as a major player on the international stage. Now, it's not going to be a global power of the first order anytime soon, but it already is the preeminent power in South Asia and has been and will be for decades and will be, I think, unless it, for, for the foreseeable and for the unforeseeable future. But it is now increasingly bound up both in the um, economics of integrative Asia, so the trade investment patterns, not just with China, but also with Southeast Asia. Southeast Asia is the biggest single source of um, inbound investment into India, and it's and, and there's a quite significant commodity trade back to Southeast Asia, so that's growing. But more importantly is that, that the Modi government sees itself as an important leader in, the, in this sort of Asian um, context. And so it's joined the institutional frameworks, it sees itself as, as a stakeholder in the South China Sea disputes. And, and not just because there are Indian firms that have economic interests in some of the um, uh, exploratory drilling that's going on in, in some of the uh, gas fields, but that, that's part of it as well. Um, they've developed strategic partnerships with Japan, with Vietnam and elsewhere. So they're thinking of themselves in a way which is binding this, the region together. And of course, the US has already been doing this and been doing this for decades. Um, and in, it, arguably, the United States has, it was the first country to really think about Asia as a strategic system when it created PACOM decades ago and gave it a, a purview that goes from Hawaii to the border of Pakistan. You know, this is, 
Um, this is a, you know, a, a big expansive vision of the kind that, that you know, the US has had for, for many decades, maybe coming to the end of. Uh, so you've got this, you know, the actions and sort of self-interests and self-conceptions and the role played by um, Asia's great powers is also creating this system. And I think also the, the, the final point to add is around um, institutions. So that Asia, you know, if, if you go back to where I started with that Asia didn't kind of exist, one of the reasons, one of the you know, either examples and or reasons, depending on where you fall on the liberal institutional um, ideological spectrum, um, was that there's no pan, there were no pan-Asian regional institutions. Now that's where that's cause or effect, you know, hard to tell. Um, but certainly now, in the enthusiastic embrace of multilateral institutions that occurred in the sort of early noughts um, through until relatively recently, we've now got a set of institutions um, that, that sort of map relatively well onto this more integrated vision of Asia. The, bit, the biggies are the East Asia Summit, um, and the ASEAN Defence Minister's Meeting Plus process, um, sometimes rather unlovely, dis it, uh, it described in the rather ASEAN um, phrase of ASEAN plus three, plus three, plus two. They've got 18 members and they've joined in various tranches. Um, but they've got, they've got a mirror membership, so they've got the same countries that are members of them. Um, and then you add to that something which we, we didn't talk about earlier about China, um, when you're talking about its kind of leadership and, and what it has done to, to drive this integrative process has been a uh, China-led set of institutions that uh, have, you know, they don't have a big blueprint and a clear preordained, you know, really neat structure to them, but they nonetheless represent a vision both of Chinese leadership, but also a vision of what, what this integrative um, geopolitical space, what the more integrated geopolitical space looks like. And, and this is comprised of most obviously things like the Shanghai Cooperation Organization, which is a sort of often laughingly described as a Central Asian Dictators Club or in the more, in the more conspiratorially minded, a um, you know, Warsaw Pact with gas, um, but, or Warsaw Pact meets gas cartel, but how you can have a supplier and a consumer and a cartel, I'm not quite sure, but anyway. Um, but also more recently added to this things like um, the uh, Asian AIIB, the Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank, uh, and I'm pretty confident that at some point fairly soon, the Belt and Road Initiative, OBOR, call it what you will, will have some institutional frameworks around it. I mean, it already has institutions if you understand it in terms of legal commitments and, and um, agreements, but I think that's probably stretching the definition of institution fairly far. Plus there is that one, the, the um, train spotters, I mean, if, if you like multilateral institutions, the test of just how committed you are to multilateral institutions is if you can tell me what CICA stands for, which is uh, sometimes referred as kicker or sometimes sicker, depending on your point of view. So this is the conference on conference interaction and conference building in Asia. So this is the place at which um, uh, in 2014 in Shanghai, Xi Jinping stood up and made his declaration that uh, the region needed a security architecture for Asia by Asians, i.e. not you, America. Um, and I just happened to be in Shanghai at the time in a car, riding from the airport with Latrobe's vice chancellor, and these banners are fluttering on the the, the, the um, highway going in from the airport, and he says, "What's what's this?" To which I had to give him the embarrassed answer: "I didn't know." I was like, "I don't know." He said, "Isn't this your area?" I said, "Yes, <laughs> this is my area. <laughs> I have no idea what the Conference of Interaction and Conference Building in Asia is." Um, and and whilst it's not a you know it ain't no EU, um, it's still 
a statement around a kind of vision for, for Asia. So you've got at both the economic, a great power sort of interest action level and also an institutional framework that's beginning to do the kind of um, yeah, buying the acting as the connective tissue of this of this geopolitical what I think is a, a increasingly coherent strategic system. We've done pretty well thus far, but I think we must talk about he who must be named, and that Ooh. is the Ooh. Donald. Must be talked about every occasion. One of my favourite lines in this paper is you say Obama's foreign policy was about managing decline. Trump intends to finish the job. <laughs> How do you see what's going on in Washington playing into? what's changing in, in Asia. And to what degree should Washington actually almost celebrate this integrated Asia, given its support over the last seven decades for Asia to become more integrated, more capitalist, more developed, more like the first world, if we go back to that kind of Cold War rhetoric. Isn't this what it's been looking for? Yeah, the kind of be careful what you wish for syndrome. Um, and might come to that second, because I, I think that they're two related but separate things. So. The first is, I, I partly wrote that because there's no better way of annoying Obama people to say, your foreign policy is just like Trump's, because it, that you see the steam come out of their ears. And I hope someone said that to Jake Sullivan when he was in town. But, but there are, you know, if you strip away the stupid tweets and the careless language and the sort of self-serving muscularity that is self-serving and no one believes it's, it's real, um, there is a fundamental continuity so far between Obama and Trump, and that may be kind of MH370 syndrome. You know, it's on autopilot, and we're just waiting for something to happen, or it could crash into the sea. Um, but what I think is m more likely, and at the sort of more the deeper point, um, being less flippant, is the reason Obama was sought to adjust America's approach to the world and particularly to try to reduce the, the sense that the US was the preeminent stakeholder in the global order um, was because the structural forces shaping the global economy and America's interests were driving it in that direction. You know, the, 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 you know, the, the unarguable fact is that in 1945, the United States accounted for something like 54% of global production. And that was partly a result of the fact that all of the other developed economies had just bombed the crap out of each other and were in literally, you know, Western Europe was a, was a, a disaster area. Um, since that time, up until now, there has been an inexorable reduction in the share of American global production, just as a measure of America's slice of the global pie. Um, and as others become richer, as others become more important, as others become more ambitious, then their sense of their stake in the system grows. And consequently, America's sense of their stake in this, this stake in the system is going to, going to decline. So the, the, you know, the forces that propelled Obama to reduce America's aperture for strategic ambition, I think are the self-same things that are driving Trump. And Trump's forces. I mean, he's he himself is kind of erratic and all over the place. And what he says one morning, what he says that evening, will be all over the place. But if you kind of pull all that out as noise and look at what the United States has been doing under this administration and what it intends to do and where it's going, I think the pattern so far is pretty clear that it's about trying to reduce America's exposure, reduce um, and and get others to do more to support the system as a whole. And that's been a pretty common theme for a decade or so. Um, you could even argue, although I think the evidence isn't there yet, but you could argue that what Trump has done, wittingly or not, has got everyone else to realize this. You know, that the Trump as heart attack warning, you know, 
you have a heart moment, so you have to, you know, lose weight and get off the booze and the cigarettes because otherwise, you know, that, that trumps that, trumps the sort of existential crap. If we don't do something, it'll all come tumbling down. I mean, he presents it as, you know, since I've come and told the allies at NATO, for example, they have to pay more, the money's been pouring in, you know, the fact that there is no in in which to pour the money and we haven't seen it yet. But I think countries are beginning to wake up and realize that if you are a country like Australia that depends on a liberal international order, an open global economy, and a stable balance of power in Asia, the things that have produced that in the past are not likely to continue to produce that. And, the, and what's driving that is, has been, um, I think, a long-term set of, of forces. And, and Trump is, in some respects, the symptom of it. He's not the, the cause of it. Um, so then gets the second question about, um, you know, be careful what you wish for. And I, I think we saw a, an early indication of this around the AIIB. So the Americans have been saying openly, publicly, which is not always the best way to handle China, but to openly, publicly say to China, we want you to be a res responsible stakeholder in the international system. You know, and by that we mean, PS, our definition of a responsible stakeholder in our conception of the international system. But that's the language. And so China says Asia needs infrastructure. Lots of it. And every time you turn around, the figure that is quoted by international institutions about the amount of infrastructure investment that's needed in Asia, it grows. So when the AIB was first set up, I think the amount was five trillion, then it became nine trillion. Latest figures I've seen is 18 trillion. Now, whether this is because there's a bidding war and in infrastructure investment, who knows? However you slice it, it the figures are big. Um, and so China says, yep, well, we will step up because we've got lots of surplus capital. Um, and we know a bit about infrastructure development because we've been doing it for a while and set up this bank. And who was the biggest, loudest, most vocal opponent to this was the United States. So you have a kind of sense of you want others to do more, but you want to do them on, on entirely your own terms. And I think that's the, there's that, plus the fact that you, know, you, you have an American kind of foreign policy establishment that's grown up in its, its entire lifetime in which it is the most important kid on the block and that it sees the world in these very universalistic terms. That's to say American values are global values, America's interests are global interests. Um, and they don't mean that in some kind of conspiratorial sense, but there's a genuine sense that you know, if, if all of the world looked like um, a Virginia suburb, then we'd all be better off, which I'm not sure is what the rest of the world necessarily thinks. Um, so there is a sense that uh, the, the forces that are reducing America's, the, the sort of forces that are propelling the continuity between Obama and Trump are also the forces that mean America is going to matter less. And that is disquieting, most obviously because for a country like the US, you will no longer be the, not just the predominant power and walk around feeling good about being the predominant power, that you will be less able to set the terms of the international debate. That's to say your influence will re be reduced. And that is, you know, that, that's understandably disheartening and, and disquieting. Uh, and so there's this tension between wanting and encouraging a more integrated capitalist, you know, generally of the sort of things that, that America would like, but that, you know, you, you can't possibly think that a more economically developed Asia is going to necessarily just come and sail in behind the United States, either in terms of interests or in terms of values or, or outlook. Um, and so I think there's, there's that sense that America, as the US looks out onto the region, of which it's a fundamental part, and it remains, it continues to be the most important player in Asia as a whole, um, but its relative position is declining. That uh, decline in its influence is something that it's trying to manage, and, that, and the Obama people, I think, did an extraordinarily good job at managing the politics of it internationally. They did a terrible job managing the politics of it at home, 
And that's actually one of the things that to me is the, is the most remarkable component of um, Obama's foreign policy was the complete inability uh, or and perhaps it was a function of not believing that it was necessary to do any sales job at home about America's global role. Um, and if you, want to, if you want to understand how the door opens to someone like Trump, that's one of the reasons, is that the US doesn't say, actually, there's a reason we are out in the world spending billions or trillions of dollars being the preeminent military power in East Asia, being the preeminent conventional power in Western Europe, underlying the strategic balance in the Middle East up until a month or two ago. Um, because it has all these spillover benefits. Whereas Trump comes and goes and, and, and responds to a population that particularly in those four um, swing states that voted for him, where you've got you know, hollowed out middle class, where you've got these opioid problems, and they sit there and go, why the hell are we out there protecting North, South Korea from North Korea, or Taiwan from China, or Japan from all of the, all of the above? Um, when my town is a wasteland, all of my friends are heroin addicts, um, who aren't heroin dealers, and I have no prospects of getting a job in my lifetime. You know that you can, and that disconnect is is profound, and it's and t it c continues, and it also PS is happening here. Not that the opioid problem, but the inability to focus on international issues um, in domestic politics. But that's a separate, separate but related point. When we talk about integrated systems and kind of economic um, orders. The obvious model that has sprung to mind for the last uh, few decades is the European Union. And yet your argument is that as Asia becomes more integrated, as more people cross borders and talk to each other and engage online as well as economically, we're actually going to see them become more nationalistic and, and this will be a powerful force. How do you square that? Yeah, I, I, I square this by saying Europe, like with, with everything, Europe is unusual. The, the whole European experiment is the outlier. The mistake is to look at Europe and see the, the, the model for the rest of the world. Um, Asia's experience of the past three or four decades, which incidentally in, in its modern incarnation, this is the most peaceful four decades in Asia's history, since the, at least since the Europeans showed up, if not before. Um, and yet as that has, and that has produced world historical levels of prosperity, you know, the, the, the old line that I repeat endlessly, you know, never have more people been had their life chances improved more rapidly than in China over the past three or four decades. This is without question the greatest story in human economic development history. But um, the fact that Asian countries are getting wealthier and trading more with each other and investing more with each other is exhibit a empirical argument against the liberal utopianism, which is as countries trade with each other more, they don't necessarily erode their sense of nationalism and ambition. In fact, if anything, the examples in Asia show the opposite is occurring, which is as countries are becoming wealthier, they're becoming more ambitious, they're becoming more confident, and in the hands of some political elites, not all, um, they're becoming more assertive, and you could, I mean, you're certainly becoming more bombastic, uh, and have greater capacity to defend their interests militarily. And so I think those things are together creating, and are going to, and those trends aren't going away. Certainly not going away in China for so long as the party state is in charge. Um, this is, you know, this is a party that has hitched its wagon fundamentally in terms of its domestic legitimation strategy, or towards a kind of wounded redemptionist vision of its wounded redemptionist nationalistic vision of its history. So as I say, the rest of the world has undermined and torn China apart, and the only way in which we can protect ourselves from this nasty encircling set of powers 
is through the party and through a strong, confident pushback against these forces. Uh, in Japan, under Prime Minister Abe, you've got not, it's not 1935. Let's be really clear. Abe is not about to seize the oil fields of Southeast Asia anytime soon. That lesson's been learned. Japan is not the country that it was prior to the war. But equally, it's not a country that feels squeamish. Certainly Abe's vision is not of a country that feels squeamish about military capacity, about having interests that it needs to defend, and being able to stand up for its interests and its rights in the face of a world which is increasingly threatening to it. Um, that's, the, that's the strong perception. Um, and, you know, the, the Abe is the dominant politician in Japan of his generation. I, will argue he's I would argue he's probably going to be seen as the most important politician in Japan after 1945, because he will remain prime minister at least until the Olympics. And that was partly he wanted to stick around. I don't think it was this thing where they convinced him to dress up as Super Mario for 2016, he said, God damn it, I'm going to stick around. And <laughs> in return, you have to change the LDP constitution to allow me a third term as leader of the party um, at, the, at the very least. Uh, but, but he will be this dominant figure and he will take Japan. The, con the constitution is likely to change, not in any profoundly radical way, but it's going to change. Um, and in India, the, the, the India is probably the one where it's, it, you know, the, 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 the future is perhaps the most uncertain in the sense that Modi now is dominant and he's likely to win the prime ministerial election again in 2019. 2019. Thanks, Bob. Um, it'd be very surprising if he doesn't, given how they're going at pre how they're tracking at present. He has an extraordinarily nationalistic ambition for India. But what comes next? Because this, the India story is not a five or ten year story; it's a 20, 25 year story. But the BJP is the only country, the, the only party that's got a credible national presence. India could become much more decentralized, who knows. But I, I think if you assume um, that a BJP vision of, China, of Indian nationalism is going to be the dominant political force over the next decade or so, then you're going to see a, a similar nationalistic sentiment. Now, I think the, 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 the point to emphasize is nationalism in Asia in the 21st century is not nationalism in Europe in the 30s. So it's not, you know, next stop, the killing fields and genocide. But it does mean that where there are disputes, and there continue to be significant old-fashioned territorial disputes, um, it will make managing those disputes much harder. Um, it will also mean you, it's, you can't rule out the use of force in a way that if it was just, you know, we're all being good liberal rationalist utility maximizers, you could rule out force. Um, and that there will also be a sense of not wanting to be beholden to others. Um, so those are the things that I, I think uh, the Asia is this example of liberal economic interdependence doesn't damp down nationalism. It seems to fuel it, at least under certain circumstances. Uh, and that as a result of that, and the dominance of Asia's three or four really big powers, we're going to see you know, a difficult time ahead. And don't forget, you know, Trump, Trump presents himself a, a political manifestation of wounded nationalism. So it's, you know, it's, not, it's not just the aspirant powers, but the dominant powers got it too. I'll open that up to questions from the floor in a minute, but I just wanted to ask, I guess, the so what kind of question. You know, now Malcolm Turnbull is a regular reader of the Center of Gravity series. Tomorrow morning, your phone rings. It's the PM. He wants to know. You know, his predecessors used to talk about an Indo-Pacific. You're now talking about a much bigger integrated mm. Asia. What does this mean for Australia? How should we respond to this changing environment? Uh, go to voicemail. Quick. <laughs> No, it's look. It, it's there's the paper's got some under your expert 
um, guidance slash firm hand. Um, there, there's a set of kind of policy recommendations, but I think the things, if, if Turnbull got on the line and said, right, give me four, four quick points that, you know, you've got 95 seconds, um, I think the first would be, yeah, the sentiment that you expressed at Shangri-La two weeks ago, whenever it was, um, is right in the sense that um, in, this, in, this, in this strategic environment, China is going to be more assertive and more confident. And countries like Australia and others who feel challenged by that need to do more. But that's part of the point is that so far we've, we talk about it, but we don't do it. So the question is, what, what does Australia need to do or to be able to do in an integrated Asia? Now, I'm not, not necessarily saying that the only way to handle this region is to be kind of more coercive on China or to try to contain China. But, but what Australia does need to recognize is that its alliance with the United States will become uh, less useful to it than in the past. Not, again, not, not useless, but less useful. Um, that China's influence in the region is going to grow so the question is, do you wish to, um, where do you want to position yourself in that regard? Um, that Australia's interests are already pretty global, uh, but they're going to get more stretched and more thinly stretched. Uh, and I think as China becomes more, as China gets this kind of strategic depth and as the continental side of integrated Asia becomes more important, then I think Australia needs to be able to operate um, it, it needs, it's going to need to kind of get used to being a little bit more peripheral again. Actually, oddly enough, you know, we've had this, we've had the tyranny of distance. Now we've got the promise slash perils of proximity. Um, and I think actually things are going to, the, the center of gravity, to use a phrase, is going to shift back a bit more towards con continental Asia. So there's, there's that. I think sp on, in more concrete terms, we've got to develop partnerships with countries that are similarly positioned to us. So that's to say countries like Japan, like Indonesia, like India, um, that have interests in integrative Asia, but whose interests are, are going to be aligned a little bit more with China and a little less with the US, but who may find that from a values point of view, that's uneasy. You know, that makes us uneasy, um, because I think the 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 reality is: Do you want to live in a world in which you swap American power for Chinese power? In terms of the value side of the equation, that's pretty disheartening if you're a you know, liberal, you know, if you're a liberal country like Australia. Um, and then I think from an institutional point of view, Australia's got to focus on the institutions that reflect this, this version of what Asia is going to become and is becoming, and not a vision of Asia that looked good in the 1990s. What I mean by that, spend less time at APEC and more time at the East Asia Summit. When, you know, get engaged directly with the Belt and Road Initiative, we're like a deer in the headlights with it right now because there's, we're, we're, it's, it's, it's the ex exact same thing with the AIIB playing itself out again, which is we don't quite know what to do with this because we don't know whether it's economic or it's strategic. Because at the moment we have two sets of scripts for how to deal with China. One's a script about economic stuff, and we know what to do with that. And one's a script about politics stuff. We know how to, but if, if it cuts across, we don't quite know how to deal with those. Um, and I think the Belt and Road Initiative, we need to engage with it. Doesn't mean you have to sign an MOU a la New Zealand, um, but you could. Uh, and it's, it's a pr an ongoing process. Um, and also when, and, and, and begin to focus on those institutional mechanisms around Central Asia and begin to look at, at focusing ways in which Australia can be, have, have a greater kind of institutional influence and, and spend less time at the ARF and APEC because 
you know, if you work in the Department of Foreign Affairs that does all this stuff, your budget's been going backwards for 25 years. It's not going to go up anytime soon, I don't think. So you've got to spend your money a little differently. And I would say Integrative Asia needs an institutional architecture that re reflects that and not the 90s vision of, of, of that, that's that Pacific Rim vision of, of, of Asia's regionalism, which is, p is plainly not got a, I don't think has a future. All right. Excellent. Slightly more than 95 seconds. We'll have to eh. work on that. I'm an academic. 90, I was an academic 95 seconds. When we launched this series in 2011, the first paper was on the Indo-Pacific by Professor Rory Medcalf. And, and Professor Bisley wrote to me and said, oh, it's an interesting idea. Not sure I completely agree with it. And I said, well, you know, we'd love to have you involved. And every time in the years since that I've seen him, I've kind of needled him a little bit and said, where's the paper? We're looking forward to it. Um, but I think you'll all agree that it's very much worth the wait. I think this is really what the Center of Gravity series is designed to do. Big, bold ideas that really try to rethink how we're approaching the world from an Australian perspective and on the biggest questions uh, facing us today, and hopefully in a very easy and accessible format. Um, there are hard copies outside. You can certainly get uh, electronic copies on our website, the Strategic and Defense Study Center of ANU. Look out for our new ones coming up soon on ASEAN and Australia Relations uh, by Tony Milner. That's going to be a pretty special piece. And also one by Paul Dibb on the decline of the West and, and crisis of the West. Thank you all very much for coming along to the launch here in Melbourne. Sadly, our first, certainly won't be our last of Centre of Gravity number 31, Integrated Asia, Australia's Dangerous New Strategic Geography by Professor Nick Bisley. Thank you, Nick. Thanks, Andrew. That was Professor Nick Bisley speaking at the launch of his new Centre of Gravity paper, Integrated Asia, which you can now read on the Strategic and Defence Studies Centre website. Asia Rising is a podcast produced by Latrobe Asia, and you can subscribe to it on iTunes or SoundCloud. You can follow both myself and Nick Bisley on Twitter. Nick is at Nick Bisley, and I'm at AO Carr. I'm Andrew Carr, and thanks for listening. <laughs>